Welcome to By the Campfire, a podcast in which I sit down around a virtual campfire to have a good conversation with a guest. No time limits, no prepared topics, just an old-fashioned conversation. I'm someone who actually likes to do a lot of things, perhaps a little bit too many things. Uh, but first and foremost, um, I'm an avid developer. I really love to get to know the development fields, all the characteristics there. Um, but and next to that, I'm just a regular guy who uh, lives in a beautiful town with his two dogs, his wife, and enjoys life as much as he can. So you see yourself as a regular guy? Uh, I try to, actually. Uh, <laughs> I, I can be a little bit uh, awkward at times, but that's uh, actually fun. Okay. So um, you're a developer. That's how we know each other, of course. That's how we get got to know each other. Um, what have you been doing as a developer? Oh, I've been involved in so many things uh, over the years. Um, most of the development community probably knows me best uh, from projects like PHP Documenter. Um, I've been involved uh, on sidelines with Symfony. Uh, um, yeah, all kinds of things actually, ranging from front end, back end, a uh, little bit of design every once in a while. Uh, yeah, name it, and I may have been involved with it. So, a developer that also dabbles with design, that's interesting. Yeah, um, it's actually part of uh, my family. Uh, both my mother and my brother are uh, more of the artistic types than I at least used to be. Um, although I must admit that when I was at elementary school, uh, I was in this club where we drew comic books together. Um, and every, I think, one or two weeks, we made a comic book with four or five people together. And um, being the enterprise person that we were, we sold them, I think, for one guilder each uh, back at elementary school already. But for some reason, I never continued drawing that much. And, uh, well, the computer grabbed my attention. I fell in love with development um, and actually rolled onto there. And at one point I was like, okay, is, is this all there is? I started out backend development, PHP mainly. And I'm looking back uh, and at one point I was like, okay, but I want to make a website I, myself, just a lovely website. And I created something and I looked at the result and I was like, oh, good Lord, this is hideous to look at. And um, I think at, the, at that point, the decline started when I actually started investing time in front-end de design, uh, user experience design, because I like things pretty. <laughs> but who doesn't? Well, okay, a lot of developers don't really care that much about it, but you do. Yeah, an interesting thing I encountered, in the, especially in the backend world, is that people uh, tend to say, oh, it, it works or ah, it's good enough. Mm -hmm. uh, at which point I look at the design, I'm like, oh, but wait, uh, the color contrast is too low, so that might be a problem for people who have color blindness. Um, the margin and the paddings are too low, meaning that um, things are too crammed together, making it hard to read, up to the point where I'm looking at typography and trying to fiddle around there just to make a website more attractive and uh, perhaps even better, more usable for the uh, customer. But that does, isn't that um, something that should always happen? It just doesn't always happen. And you're the person that 
pays attention to that where uh, other developers don't. Isn't that an, like a normal, natural thing to happen? I would like to think so. However, in the field, I see different things, uh, especially when it comes to fields like accessibility. Um, I see that a lot of people are skipping the necessary steps to make a website accessible for people who are um, impaired visually, um, who are impaired uh, in, others, in their other senses, though visuals are the most important one. Um, so yeah, I actually wish that people would pay more attention to those areas. By law, I think companies are, are required to do that. Um, and have been for years, although a lot of companies haven't actually done that. Um, is that something, I think in, in the US, um, they're much more strict about it. Is that something that we should be more strict about? Or is that something that should not come from the from the government, but people should do it by themselves? I actually would love it if people would do it by themselves. I don't like things that are being uh, enforced or forced upon you. Um, it would be better if it would just be uh, some set of best practices that you'd always do. However, I do think it's thus important that um, I think it would be good if people were to be more reinforced, if, if you would call it like that, to build accessible websites. Mm. Um, if you think that, uh, if I remember correctly, 10% of the male population has some form of color blindness, for example. Right. And if I look at the number of websites out there who are yeah, not well suited for people with color blindness, that's quite appalling, actually. So how come, um, if there's so many people that have that type of color blindness, how come there's not a bigger outcry for people to improve the websites? Um, so actually, that's a rather good question for which I don't think I have an answer at hand. If I were to guess, I'd say complacency. People are used to things being uh, well not well suited for their particular handicap, even though it could be. Right. And if I look around on uh, social media, for example, I follow a couple of people who are uh, visually impaired in one way or another. Um, and I do see it outcry every once in a while from someone who actually mentions, hey, don't use emojis in your Twitter handle because my uh, speech reader will make absolute gar war garble out of that one. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. I, I, I've never thought of that. Well, actually, some, some people uh, like to use those uh, really pretty characters in their uh, yeah. Twitter, Twitter names. And uh, when you sh if you have the time, Use a speech reader and let it speak talk that aloud because usually it's mathematical characters, and it will actually pronounce ah. it as mathematical f, mathematical e, and uh, right things like that. So then a very simple name like like Mike uh, turns into something completely unusable. Absolutely, interesting. Um, so so do you sometimes use like a, a screen reader or? Uh, any other tools to test stuff that you work on for for accessibility issues? Honestly, I should do more often. Uh, especially speech readers, I don't use that much. Um, one other developer I know of is actually uh, an accessibility champion, uh, as it were, and he uses that quite frequently. Uh, I do have a software installed on my Mac uh, to change the colors of my screen to match the vision of someone with color blindness. Oh, there's tools like that that you can just install? Uh, absolutely. 
for for a speech reader. You don't need anything other than Chrome, for example, because it has a speech reading functionality built in. Right, right. Okay, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Um, so uh, there's a tool that changes the colors. There's a tool uh, like in the inside your browser. There's a tool that does screen reading. Is there any other things that people should pay attention to that you think, or any tools that they can use to uh, improve their website? In terms of tooling, uh, there's nothing that really comes to mind directly. Um, I, I do can say pay attention to things like keyboard shortcuts. Uh, I know, for example, that there is uh, a class of people who have trouble <coughs> using their wrists and uh, aren't able to use the mouse, for example. Right, yeah, yeah. Uh, for the client I'm currently working with, uh, we've invested quite a lot of time to make sure that the uh, navigation, the, ma the main navigation, is actually completely usable using a keyboard uh, without having to do all kinds of interesting things like tabbing four times, uh, going pressing your left arrow two times, and uh, something that's more complicated than Konami code. Right, yeah. That's what I was thinking. Like when you were when you were saying that, I'm like, oh, that sounds like a cheat code for, for a PlayStation or something like that. Absolutely. Most people don't pay attention to those kind of things. Uh, another simple thing that you can pay attention to is your tab order. Yeah. And most forums, have, you have HTML attributes for which you can set the tab order. And some forums completely uh, may make incredible forms where you tap and then you're like, okay, where the hell did my cursor go? Yes. Yes, that is a frustration that uh, that I feel every once in a while as well. Yeah, okay, so that's that's interesting. So it, it's actually quite easy to pay attention to, to usability uh, even without, uh, you know, investing uh, days or weeks of your time. Absolutely. Um, I think most of the usability things are a bit of common sense. When you think about it for just one second longer, you're like, okay, wait, hold on. There may be someone who's impacted by this. And yet I worked on a project which uh, <laughs> you are very familiar with at the moment uh, where they had you know, dedicated UX people uh, next to graphical designers, dedicated UX designers to uh, to to look at the UX. So there's something to be said to really, really invest in that as well. Uh, absolutely. I think uh, UX, for example, it's a completely different field, which goes much further than, further than just accessibility. Right. Um, and so that's why I think if you have a larger, uh, larger website uh, serving quite a few customers, it always pays to have a UX designer just to check out how's the flow of my application. Right. Right, um, but uh, so the project you work on right now, do they still have that many UX people? Um, not as many as before, but we still have multiple UX designers and visual yeah. designers yeah. who are continuously looking at uh, the website, not just to see uh, for new parts, how's flow going, but also for pre-existing parts, how can we improve this flow? Yeah, because that's one thing I learned from that project. Uh, that this is not something that you do once, and then uh, and then you your UX is okay. Uh, this is a continuous process. Absolutely, the world continuously evolves. Um, yes, and yesterday's news yesterday's news is 
it feels like a decade ago sometimes. And uh, same goes for improvements in terms of usability um, and accessibility. Uh, every day, every year, we get new features so that we can better serve the people out there. Uh, well, the most well-known one was actually HTML5, where you got this whole new series of elements that you could use to better express what your website is about. Yeah. But also in terms of practices, we're continuously learning, evolving, and that way it's always good to go back and look, can I improve this even more? So that that continuous evolution of, uh, I guess, technology that we can use to improve uh, anything we work on. How do you keep up with all of that? Because I know, so this is a thing, of course. We work together on a daily basis. I I already have difficulty keeping in touch with you know what's the latest stuff uh, PHP related news. Um, and you focus on PHP, but you also do Unity and you also do design and you do front end and, you know, you keep up to date with all of those. How do you do that? Well, first of all, accept that you can't know everything. Uh, I think that's, that's my main point of focus. So, um, whenever I pick up a mul whenever I pick up a couple topics, uh, for example, like Unity design, uh, backend development, I accept that I cannot know everything in a 100% depth. Um, however, um, I have also first done backend development for a long time, uh, got to know the ins and outs of certain parts, got to know certain architectural patterns. And after you gain more experience, it also becomes easier to pick up new things because uh, it's always built on the shoulders of giants. Mm -hmm. um, so in terms of where do I get my information, uh, I actually at this stage in my development, I find it very hard to find a proper, uh, proper piece of information. If I look back at the past one or two decades of uh, web development, uh, we have gotten so many incredible tools, um, named Varnish, named RabbitMQ Messaging. Um, well, Kubernetes is one of the latest developments. Uh, Docker, if you look a little bit more back, on which Kubernetes built. There are so many great tools that have come out in the past decades and or I'm not seeing it or I got a feeling that it's actually slowing down a little bit. We as a web development community are maturing and are finding uh, some solutions to actually work and be consistently used. Right, right. But okay, so you say it's slowing down and I say I, can, I still can't keep up. <laughs> <laughs> How is that possible? Well, actually, that is an interesting conundrum. Uh, I'm not, I don't know if I've got a really good answer for that part. Um, I think it's a matter of perception um, in terms of keeping up. I do have the feeling that a lot of details are coming forward. So if I look, for example, at the latest PHP developments in 7.2, 7.3, we have received uh, quite, quite a few improvements, but they are on the micro level. Right. They are where you where you look down and say, okay, these are tinkerings. Um, I don't feel that the the big shifts mm -hmm. that we've had in the last decade, with Kubernetes, for example, we now have a big shift going on there. But for web development itself, I feel like we're on a plateau at the moment. Okay. Okay. Um, so basically, that means that a lot of the knowledge you still have, you can keep reusing that uh, on every new project that you work on. 
That's basically what you're saying. Or is there still something new to learn in every project? I haven't encountered a project where I didn't learn, actually. Uh, okay. So it's always a matter of learning. It's But you sometimes have to look for your learnings. So if you yeah. stay within the same uh, region of application, so the same framework, the same um, domain, now sometimes it's really hard to develop yourself. Yeah. Um, so I think you sometimes need to actively push yourself to find that gem. Right, right. Is that the reason why you took up uh, game development with Unity? Actually, it is. Um, I've been doing backend development for, well, uh, more than 10 years, more than a decade. And at one point I was like, okay, I need. there's more out there. Um, and I dabbled in a couple of other languages and I did a couple of other languages before I actually went into PHP. Um, but I've been so much focused on that specific part that I was like, okay, I need something different and something with a wholly different paradigm. Uh, so I've been looking around, I looked at Ruby, Python, and they all share uh, a similar pattern that PHP has, um, perhaps some sometimes different angle. But if you look at uh, Unity and interactive media development or game development, there are some really different things in there that you cannot do in PHP or which you never would do in PHP. Uh, the most clear example would be that a singleton is not evil in, in game development. Right, right. And uh, so what what is it that makes it not evil there and that makes it evil in you know, our world? Um, well, partly because of the different paradigm. If you look at how Unity works, um, you're basically your IDE is more prominent than that it is in the PHP world. Your IDE is also the platform that runs your game and uh, coding and scripts are actually more like scripts. They are embedded into parts of the engine. Mm -hmm. However, the engine is still uh, more central. It, that maintains your application loop, uh, that maintains how state is being dealt with. Um, and a very simple uh, example might be that um, if you use a script attached to a piece of behavior within game development, you do not have access to the constructor. So right. things like dependency injection, which is one of the uh, biggest developments within most of the object-oriented programming community, uh, is not possible there unless you build special constructs. Right, right. So does it? So a lot of the things you're saying, except maybe for that last part, uh, sounds like uh, the the game engine is is sort of like a framework in PHP. Um, except maybe for the fact that, you know, in PHP world, you can always extend uh, a framework or a library and, uh, and add your own functionality. It sounds like that's a bit harder in, uh, in game development or in Unity at least. Um, yeah, it, it's, uh, it, I think it, the comparison with the framework is actually quite applicable since um, yeah, you build on top of something that's pre-existing, the game engine, Hence, the name Game Engine deals with a lot of things that you would otherwise have to deal with yourself. If you were to build your own Game Engine, for example, it would be much more like your regular programming, where you do have access to everything. Yeah. However, in this case, you're uh, tying into tying into a framework and only have a couple of connection points. Although I must admit that with Unity, there are that many available uh, that even that is not limiting in any way. Is there? Is there um 
I'm not sure if you want to say you are working on a big project with Unity right now, right? Is there do you want to share anything about that, or is that something that's still uh, secret? Secret, not as much. Um, I've been working on a big project for with Unity for I think almost two years now, um, and I'm quite hesitant to share because um, I know it, it can fail. That I do know that I may cancel it at some point and uh, when I may make big announcements and, and such, it feels like that I'm, I'm uh, making myself uh, forced to actually yeah, well, um, go through with it or keep people up to date. While this big project um, is also a playground for me. Right. I, I'm, I like to pick up big things to push my boundaries. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and especially things that I actually can't do yet. Yeah. Okay. But that's um, shouldn't it still be okay to talk about uh, your playground po projects? Absolutely. I mean, that's fine, right? Uh, I guess. Um, I guess I can speak for everyone, but I know a lot of developers that have their own pet projects, their playground projects, and some of them uh, they become actual big things. Uh, and other others don't, but that's okay, to, right? Uh, or Absolutely, I think that it's uh, a great idea to have a playground project. Um, honestly, I've, I sometimes got multiple at the same time, and most of them are not meant to be finished. Most of them right. are just meant to learn, uh, so I can definitely recommend that to people. On the other hand, if you don't want to do uh, side projects and spend your time with your kids, with your wife, uh, with all kinds of different hobbies, I'm fine with that too. Um, as for me, um, yeah, this big project, uh, I'll call it El Rakas. Uh, I'm not sure whether that properly comes over the podcast, uh, if people can actually hear what, the, what that name exactly was. But um, it's a sci-fi MMORTS type of game I'm working on. That's an ambitious thing to work on by yourself. It's ambitious. It's well, let's just say it's overly ambitious. That's also why I don't want to commit to saying, hey, this is definitely going to be finished. I don't want to put a timeline on it. Uh, because if just working on this ambitious game, of which I know I lack lots of skills to actually complete it, mm -hmm. did make me grow in, okay, I, I need to make this in this game. So let's figure it out. Um, in, during the development phase of El Rakas, I think I spun up well, five to ten different other games, so just to pick out one mechanic that I want in Elrakis yeah. and make a small prototype out right. of that. Right. And that's also the same reason why I'm saying, okay, I'm not going to commit to any timeline mm -hmm. because I know there are going to be at least twenty more prototypes to come, yeah. meaning that I will pause development on Elrakis just to learn that one skill. Right. Doesn't that make it a successful project already? Uh, and for my own personal development, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, no doubt about that one. Is there is there any chance of uh, all of these uh, small projects that you do? Um, is there any chance of those projects being uh, published at some point, like a freeware mini game that explores just one sp specific topic that you're learning about? Um, I've actually been working towards uh, publishing uh, two of those prototypes. Okay. Um, so yeah, absolutely. And other prototypes I've barely built beyond the phase where like, okay, there's a 
a cube going through the scene and interacting with something else and well it's not fun at all right yeah okay that makes sense for something as simple as that i i can understand that you don't publish it but um if there's like one specific i don't know uh gameplay type or whatever that you want to test uh, that could actually work as a simple prototype game or something like that Absolutely. Um, at the moment, I'm working on a prototype to do uh, some kind of procedural narrative. One of the things I would like in Arrakis at some point is that you do not just fly to a mission, do the quest, uh, kill 20 rats and go back. That's just utterly boring. Um, however, to do something more complicated, I mean that you have a large content editing team uh, who are continuously crafting stories or building the world as you're speaking, I would rather see that I make a couple of beats and have a story generated around that. Um, an example might be interesting. I've, as a part of my research, I've been re-watching uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And uh. if you look closely at that uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, each episode has got the same beats. <coughs> so during the opening, a character will introduce itself, then that character will be made uh, a little bit unknown. They will push that to the, to the background. Then a situation happens. Then they're battling the situation. And at the end, that character is almost certainly being, going to be reintroduced. And either they're going to save the day or they were the problem. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So every episode has this clear beat. And then you have got the underlying beat of the whole season. And then you have an underlying beat for the whole of the series. Right. Right. So this goes way beyond technology. Absolutely. Yeah, I, that's one of the things I actually like about interactive media and uh, learning about game development is that there are so many more areas where you can learn on. Yeah, but I can... I would feel very intimidated by the amount, the, the sheer amount of uh, knowledge in so many different areas uh, that you'd want to learn. How do you how do you determine where to start? Um, basically, by doing it. Okay. Um, I set a goal to myself for Alrakis. Uh, well, as I mentioned, I was like, okay, I need this narrative. I hate quests that are like kill twenty rats, get your money. That's something I wouldn't want. What's the alternative? So you brainstorm a little bit. You come up with a couple of alternatives. You do some research. Uh, and a part of research, you encounter, okay, there's this thing called procedural narrative. And then you look at how the other games introduce procedural narrative one way or the other. Uh, the uh, Nemesis system from Shadows of Mordor is, for example, a very interesting example that gives personality to the orcs that you encounter. Okay. Um, and there are a couple of other games that currently, of course, slip my mind that were my true inspiration on, okay, these are different elements of procedural narratives that you could implement. Right. So you you play a game and you recognize some, some elements that you think, well, this is cool. I want to learn more about this. And and then you dive into that. Or, uh, or of course, you work on Alrakis. Uh, you run into a problem. Oh, I'd like to do this. And then that's that's a reason, a trigger for you to... to start learning something about that. Absolutely. Um, in Arrakis, for example, at one point, I didn't want to hand place every star, every planet, every uh, 
meteorites. I was looking into how can I do procedural generation to make this happen. At one point, I found a large list of exoplanets that's currently known about with their properties. And I was like, okay, can I use machine learning, for example, to uh, read this data set and generate new variations based on that data set? Ah, wow. So that's so you're taking actual real-world information uh, to be used in your game to, to basically seed your game. Absolutely, yeah. Wow, that's interesting. Um, and is that, is that something... Uh, do, you, do you look at other games and how they solve that same problem? Like with real-world data and, and things like that, are there more games that do that? Uh, there are definitely more games uh, who use real-world data. It does differ. Some games like to be distant from reality. Right, yeah, okay. Uh, some games use smoke and mirrors to uh, simulate uh, reality. And I think the biggest pitfall for me would actually be to make it too real. Right. Uh, re too real up to the point that it actually didn't matter whether the temperature was 20 degrees or 30 degrees on the surface, uh, stuff like that. Right. Because the player will, will not notice. Yeah, okay, okay, I understand that. And yet, uh, I can imagine that such specific details for the people that really pay attention will make the difference between a good game and a great game. Absolutely, I've seen uh, people on forums of other games um, that are actually complaining about a lack of uh, uh, reality, uh, complaining about lack of... Uh, well, let's not call it lag, but for example, this planet orbits way too fast around the system. It could never orbit that fast. Right. It's too close to another object, meaning that gravity would actually pull each apart. So there are quite a few people who are actually mindful of these things. Right. But I'm, I'm pretty convinced most people aren't. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm definitely the type of player that probably wouldn't notice unless it's really, really in my face. Um, so yeah, I, uh, but I can imagine that someone that does pay attention to that will, will see it for what it is. Like that, this is you know really cool that there's so many detail, uh, so much detail in this game. Um, so I can kind of imagine that it is something that makes the difference for people. Um, okay, so you said I'm not going to commit. Uh, if you would make an estimate right now, when would uh, El Rakesh be finished? Years away from now. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's always uh, uh, dangerous to ask a developer to make an estimate, right? Absolutely, and especially if the if the goal is large, the goal is far away. Um, it happens to me as well when I'm talking to people about larger things, smaller things. Sorry. When you're talking about, hey, I'm at the client, working for this project, we've got a couple of stories, uh, or just an epic, can you do an estimate for this epic? And I'm one of those people who actually pulls the brakes and like, okay, I could give you an estimate, but if the epic is quite large, it would mean that the deviation from my estimation would be large as well. Yeah, so it's, it's basically the estimate is still pretty useless. Um, I like to think so. However, I do see that uh, people in management, for example, uh, like a, a bit of predictability. 
Right. So um, I've, if I have an epic that costs, well, let's say, if I estimate it for 10 story points or 20 story points, that's a relatively low number, <laughs> then I would be more or less comfortable saying, okay, these are straightforward items, 10 or 20 story points, uh, give or take five. Right. However, right. if there were to be an epic where I was like, okay, um, by my roughest estimation, this would be 50 story points, and I'm definitely going to admit that the deviation by might be more than 50%, so more than 25 story points, right. but also either way. Yeah. So that that's the trade-off. Yeah. Um, I, I did, uh, on a project, I once did a practice called T-shirt sizing. Are you familiar with that? Yes. Um, I, I quite like that because it didn't actually say anything about the complexity of the, of the, the items that we were estimating, but it mostly said something about the relationship between the different items. Like, okay, so this, this epic is a lot bigger than that epic or a lot more complex than that epic. Um, so it wouldn't have any relation to, uh, to your story points because your story points have a relation either if we want it or not has a relation to how much time are we going to spend on this yes um but with t-shirt sizings that was like completely disconnected so it uh it gives the management some information but not enough information to actually link it to oh it's going to be so many hours or so many months and then we'll have this feature x um have have you ever encountered situations where uh, there was a, a, a certain um, expectation from management where you had to you had to tell them you know this is not realistic what you're thinking? I'm trying to think real hard whether I have encountered something recently. Um, in the past, I did have a couple of moments where I'm like, okay, what you want now is not a small thing. And people were like, but hell, it's one button. How large can it be? <laughs> well, and then this long story comes that they probably pick up half of the points that I make at this point. Um, but that, I think that's the hardest part. Uh, recently, uh, I had uh, one such a thing where uh, someone asked someone from the content from content team to add one item or remove one item from a list. However, they did not know that the data in that list was shared between several other locations where it may not be removed. Oh. So at that point, uh, the person who needed to make the change replied, but I cannot do this right now because that would, that would affect several other points. And the other party was like, but it's just one item in a list. How much work can that be? Right. It, context is always important. Yeah, context and what is behind uh, what is behind the story. So how uh, how do you solve something like that? How do you tell? How do you, in a friendly manner <laughs> and a clear manner, tell tell someone you know this isn't as easy as you think it is? I think that depends on the person I'm talking to. Um, each individual has got their own way of accepting information. Uh, some people like to be explained the whole process and all the facts behind it. Uh, read more technical people usually. Um, however, if you look at uh, management and higher up, then usually I try to be concise and indicate what the touch points are on this change that you would like. 
Right. So in the previous example, if I were to remove the airline here, it will also be removed from that other location. Right. And uh, what if... So, uh, okay. So uh, uh, like a regular user, you know, someone from management, um, what they see is two different pages and two different lists. How, um, it can be hard for them to understand why if you if you remove it in one place it would also be removed in another place um, and why the decision would have been made to make one list basically and reuse it in several places um, have you ever encountered issues where uh, for users it was really unclear why that decision was made Um, at one point or another, yes. However, I do not recall any specific okay. moment where yeah. that happened. Yeah. Um, and most of the thing I, I can think of is that at the times I ask people to trust me on my judgment. Right. Um, I know what is going on behind the scenes, and I would love to help them. I like to offer alternatives. I think that part is actually rather important. If someone confronts you with, "Hey, this is not what I expected. This is not what I want." Mm -hmm. Um, then just replying a negative, as in, nope, nope, not going to do it, uh, is actually not helpful for that person. The person is looking for a solution. Yeah, exactly. And just telling me that there is no solution is very unsatisfying. Yeah. However, if you can uh, think with that person on, hey, okay, I can think of a different angle on how to solve this. Um, even if that would be more complicated than what that person had in mind, but at least you're offering them an alternative. Right. And uh, people feel more comfortable if they know that you help them at the very least by thinking with them yeah. on how to solve that specific problem. You know, this is the main issue that I see a lot with um, customer service for companies, where if you ask them a question, they don't respond with, um, well, that's not possible, but maybe we could look at, you know, X or Y or do it like this or do it like that. Or uh, they don't, there's a lot of, uh, I just follow my script and this is not possible instead of let's help you. Um, so this goes beyond, way beyond technology. Uh, how How could we make the life of, you know, those people that we interact with better, easier. Uh, do, do you think this is, uh, do, do, you, do you agree with me that this is a problem that we're seeing a lot? Yeah, I think it's, it's mainly a mindset problem. Um, people like to not think in solutions, but think in problems. There's a problem, this holds my process, end of line. And not there's a problem, I would like to find a solution. Let's attack it from different angles. Um, but I do think there are more complicating factors at play here. So in your example uh, there with customer care is that at, from that point, a customer care employee is also limited in time what yeah. they can do. Yeah. They usually have a very strict deadline on how much time they may spend on you to help you with your problem. And I have heard stories of people that were actually really helpful, but were told by uh, their coaches or with whom they interacted, sorry, you should be less helpful 
<laughs> because otherwise your your conversations will take too long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a development that I really dislike. Uh, eventually, of course, this is all about money. It's it's about nothing but money because when a customer agent, customer care agent, is working on one thing, they cannot be working on another thing. So they need more people, uh, which costs more money to the mm -hmm. company, right? Yeah. Um, on the other hand, um, years, years, years ago, when I was uh, the community manager of Symphony, uh, I I got into a community of community managers, and I uh, heard a lot of good stories that they were doing with uh, with major companies um, about creating communities so that. Um, the customer care agents could could actually spend uh, more time on their cust on helping their customers because there was a community behind it of other customers that would help uh, basically customers, so they would get customer care for free. Right, so a sort of crowdsourcing solution there. Crowdsourcing solution, um, which is of course really interesting because. Uh, well, as we know from from the PHP community, and I'm I'm pretty sure it it works the same way with other technologies. Um, people are very much willing to help other people like them, uh, and I wonder why companies do not understand that uh, investing money in a community can be uh, very rewarding. Do, do you, have you seen similar things in, uh, for instance, Unity, or uh, uh, or other communities that you've been been in? Um, well, Unity is actually a rather interesting example. Um, Unity hosts uh, forums on their own websites where people can come together and exchange knowledge. Um, so that's one location where you really do see that happening. That instead of having uh, a customer representative, they have this large forum with large user base yeah. where people are continuously helping each other out. Yeah. It is interesting that sometimes you do not get the best solution out there, uh, but usually you do get a solution which can help you further with your problem. Yeah, exactly. Um, and of course, in uh, let's say the bigger PHP ecosphere. Um, there's a lot of companies that uh, that uh, invest in developer relations people, so people that uh, that do not specifically have, um, you know, they're not customer service agents. They're people that actually want to improve the developer relations, uh, so they can sometimes take more time to help people. Um, do, you, do you think this is a good development? Yeah, I think developer relations is a really important part. Uh, if a company uh, comes and offers a product, uh, reaching out is, I think, the first thing that you should do. Um, Kickstarter is a really nice example there that there are so many projects that started out as Kickstarter. But if you really look at the development, they started building their community way before they went on to Kickstarter. Okay. Uh, most of the Kickstarter projects that fail actually uh, failed even before they went on to Kickstarter because they didn't get people to enter the community and um, become attached to that right. specific project. Yeah. And I think the same thing happens with uh, companies offering services is you want people to believe in you. You want people to become part of your community. 
Um, I don't remember the author, but there's actually a really interesting graph where you look that you have your uh, early adopters, you have your fans, uh, there are a couple of predefined groups, um, and you want to look at how can I involve those groups. So uh, early adopters, for example, is a very interesting category because those people are positively inclined to you to start with and adopter technology aren't immediately discouraged when something goes wrong. They accept the fact that you are new and that you're doing something. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, you have to keep in mind, okay, that group will accept it. However, let's call them regular users because I completely forgot the categorization, of course, are less inclined to cope with your product not working or there's a glitch here and there. Yeah. So it all depends on who am I going to speak to. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Do you do you, uh, regularly buy things from Kickstarter or back projects? I should say, not that much actually, to be honest. Um, You're not an early adopter. I'm not an early adopter unless I really buy into the product, and uh, sometimes I I feel like I miss some feelers here and there to actually attach myself to communities. Right, right. But isn't that, isn't that basically part of, uh, part of, you know, being the early adopter is that you can accept that sometimes it, you, you don't have all the connections yet uh, because you're, you're, you're stepping in so early that it's, it's okay for not everything to be there. Absolutely, uh, but as an early adopter, you need to feel like you are part of this community for early adopters. Right. Uh, this product is is then immense. You want that product. It's everything yeah. you would have would have liked, and you are one of the chosen few who are actually taking part in making this big. That's the feeling you want to have as an early adopter. Right. That's the feeling you want also want to grow with your early adopters. Yeah. That they are the chosen few. They are the ones that. Uh, were there from day one. And when they talked to the grandchildren years on later, they could tell this gigantic story. But look, I was there. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. Okay. So I guess that means that I feel very much uh, inclined to be that person for a lot of things. I have to limit myself in the amount of projects that I can back on, on Kickstarter because I love... Uh, the whole concept of trying to support uh, a new product, basically. On the other hand, it's it's given us uh, quite some funny games. Uh, one of them, I will make. I will force you to play at Weekend. I'm looking forward to it already. It's it's called Throw Throw Burrito, um, and it's a game where. Um, once you have a certain combination of cards, uh, a battle ensues and people have to pick up uh, uh, soft burritos that are on a table and throw them at each other. Awesome. Is that from the creator of Exploding Kittens, by yes. the way? Yes. Ah, I was already thinking. It sounded exactly like an oatmeal game where yeah. you're like, this must be that silly. Yes. Yes. I, I believe it's the same uh, The same creators. It's. Uh, we received it uh, a couple of weeks ago and uh, we already played it at home and it's fun. And we got a special Kickstarter edition uh, with inflatable burritos as well, uh, which is perfect for on an island at WeCamp. Uh, so that's going to be fun there. 
Cool. Well, inflatable sounds like they would float, so that would be super handy in case they enter the water. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, speaking about WeCamp, um, this is uh, this is something. Okay, so we work together, right? Um, that's maybe another topic to be to be talking about later. But um, we organize WeCamp together as well uh, with a couple of other people. Of course, it's not just us two. Um, what is uh, what is for you the most fun about WeCamp? The most fun about WeCamp? Wow. We've been doing this for six years now. And uh, there have been so many highs and a couple of lows as well. Although those are quite memorable. But the most fun thing about WeCamp is seeing people completely immersed. Seeing people invested in what they're doing. Not just building projects. Not just doing the actual coding. No. Um, forming a community during that week. Right. Given that we have 25 attendees at, at most and you're um, on this island, there's no way to get off, which sounds scary at first, but it's actually quite cool. Means that you get to build this really tight community where you know each and every one and you know how you could depend on each and every one of the people present. I think that's really powerful. Right. Um so the um how has how have you experienced organizing WeCamp in the past years? WeCamp is something that drives me to um go one step further with every edition. Um in terms of my experiences, it, it I think it differs on which moment of the year you ask me. <laughs> <laughs> Directly after WeCamp, I'm full of zest, full of energy. I'm like, okay, we're going to do this again. Then I think during uh, right after the first quarter of the year after, I'm like, oh, why did I do this again? <laughs> and now that we're approaching next WeCamp, I'm fully excited again. I'm, I want to go there. I want to meet the people. I want to see what they're going to do. And that's every year, basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can confirm that there's been uh, more than one evaluation where we were seriously wondering if we should do it again. And yet every year we say, okay, we're going to do it again. I'm so glad that we don't do those evaluations in March. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I, uh, I agree that it's a good thing that we don't do it in March. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the... Um, uh, the WeCamp is, um, well, it's a lot of fun, I guess. Um, have you, what have you, because you've been there, uh, let me let me think, you've been there as a coach, you've been there as a crew, you've, you haven't been there as an attendee, have you? No, I have not, actually. Hmm. Maybe we should, we should change that at some point. Um, but um, uh, what's been the, uh, the most interesting way of being involved with WeCamp? You're really with the hard questions today. I must, of course. I, say, wow. <laughs> I don't think I can actually say that either coach or crew is better than the other or uh, more rewarding than the other. Uh, when you're a coach, you're really close up. You have um, three, four or five people who are um, under your guidance or looking to you and basically you just let them go a little bit and you steer them here and there. Um, but you give them really personal attention, a great experience, and you're responsible 
for those five. And that means you can invest in those five people. Mm -hmm. However, as a crew member, you feel more of a responsibility to cater to everyone. For each and everyone present in their own different needs, the coaches, the attendees, uh, even uh, the people who are helping us out with cooking. Um, you want to make people comfortable. Yeah. And uh, I think that's the main gist as a, as a crew member. I want to make people comfortable, worry-free, that they can focus on their thing without interruption, without having to worry about anything else. And yeah, both is great, actually. What do you think is the the biggest piece of magic happening on the island? The presentations at the end. Yeah? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so the, for the context uh, of people who haven't been at WeCamp, uh, what, what what is it that uh, that makes the presentations magic? The presentations are the apex of what people are working towards the whole week. And you can feel the energy. The uh, presentations are the part where people share the things they built, the things they did, uh, the learnings they had. And you can also feel the magic they had during the week. Right. And some people uh, depart the island uh, in joy, the others in tears of joy, um, but always with emotion, always with this feeling of we were there and um, especially that feeling is what makes it worth for me. So is is that how you measure the success of WeCamp? The amount of emotion you see at the end of the event? I personally like to prefer to express it as uh, to see how much people have grown during the event. Okay. And that usually expresses itself in the uh, amount of emotion, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, because you cannot, it, it's very hard to measure how much someone has grown, of course. That's more like a feeling that you might have. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's. Um, I think we have had a couple of attendees in the past that when they arrived at the island, uh, they were timid. They were closed off, uh, searching for their place. And um, that's actually one case where it was really obvious. Uh, after a couple of days, you saw that person open up. Um, and I think at the third or maybe fourth day, they were into it. They were going for it and they blossomed. And then came the presentation and that person did their presentation. And you think back, but well, this guy was really shy. He was really timid. This is a wholly different person. Right, right. Okay. Um, okay, one last thing, because I don't want it, this to be like a fully uh, weekend promo uh, podcast. <laughs> um what is uh, what would you say to someone who is considering going to WeCamp to uh, to uh, convince them that that is a good idea? If you want to grow in a personal sense, and I think that's perhaps even the most important part, uh, as a team player, as someone who communicates with others, this is the place where you learn it. It's safe. Just twenty five people. You know each other at one point, and it's total freedom to experiment. Right, that sounds good, that sounds good. Okay, we, t we talked about uh, this before. Um, uh, we work together, we organize WeCamp together, we work together for a company called Ingewikkeld, uh, which is always interesting, a Dutch name in, a, in an English podcast in this case. Um, but recently your role has shifted a bit 
in the company. Can you, can you, can you elaborate? Absolutely. When I started out uh, a couple of years ago, or actually seven years, I think it is already, I think we got, uh, we already know, knew each other and uh, you basically needed a, help, a helping hand with uh, you know, development and clients. Um, now, seven years later, and having worked closely together with you uh, for some time with just the two of us, I was ready to make a step and approach you. Hey, how about I join the company as a technical director? Um, you are the brains when it comes to acquisition. You are the people person. And I'm the tech guy who uh, invests way too much time into learning about new technologies. I'm still feeling sorry for my wife. Sorry. <laughs> um, but in that, we seem to really complement each other. And that also helps me grow. Right. Turn. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what is this role, this, this technical director role? What, how do you envision, you know, uh, what, what will you be doing as a technical director for Ingewikkeld? Well, uh, sometimes I like to joke that I go full on autists uh, during uh, that role. Um, I can say that. I've got the darkness. Um, <laughs> however, um, mainly what I try to do is uh, apply structure, um, apply a foundation, but also create ways for the other employees to grow in a technical sense. Right. So that can be uh, accurate training programs or uh, just introduce small habits for them to see, okay, um, what are we picking up during the week? For, for Ingewikkeld, what I try to accomplish is that we are this network, this beehive of experts. And if someone from Ingewikkeld comes at your company, you are ensured that there's not just one person, but there's actually secretly a whole beehive behind that person. Right, right. Um, so this is, uh, um, uh, I guess that this there is a bit of an overlap because you you put me in as more of the people person there is an overlap between uh, between what you will be doing which is also about people right it's about learning um, so how do you how do you feel uh, we can facilitate uh, the learning because I'm sure that if we can do it like that other people can do it like that as well mm, definitely um, I think it all starts with start small um, I've seen uh, some documentaries on how Starbucks, for example, uh, tries to co develop their company culture. And there's this concept called keystone habits, where you basically tinker with one tiny bit of your culture, mm -hmm. and then a snowball effect happens, and then people get engaged and uh, start to introduce other elements. And I think that's one of the most important parts, not that you try to dictate what your employees should do, that right. you uh, try to enforce something hard. No, you, I think it's most important part is developing culture. Yeah. Yeah. Is that, is that, um, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna just throw something in here. Um, is that, is that basically forming a type of anarchy in the company instead of being like a top down, we've got management and the, the plebs below that? Um, is do you think it's it's similar to that? 
I more or less prefer to call it more equality than anarchy. Okay. Uh, but definitely not the original top-down pointy-haired boss structure <laughs> where you tell others what to do. Um, there is some, and uh, I heard the discussion about the term principal engineer lately, uh, where the term principal resonated in such a fact that you are um, leading among peers, that you are one of one of the people, right? Um, but you help others grow. You uh, give that nudge. You introduce new activity with which you, you can grow. And as a culture, as a company, we figure out does this work for us? Right. Okay. Okay. So this is um, uh, this is this is not a. So we, of course, we as the management team, <laughs> to call it like that. Um, we positioned ourselves as the the directors, uh, but what you're saying is actually we don't want to actually be the hierarchical structure. We we actually want to be that uh, like uh, like ants, like a, a whole group of people that just uh, make each other stronger. Oh please no! I've seen so many companies where uh, you had this director and he uh, went into his office, closed the door, right. and wouldn't speak to any employee <laughs> during the day. And uh, I think that's one of the worst management tactics that you can use. Yeah, you want to be out there uh, as much as possible, talk to the people, see what their needs are. Um, and but at the same time, you do need to um, focus the quality, the culture of your company. Yeah, because everybody has has got plenty of ideas, um, but those ideas you can um, accept, let them grow. Mm -hmm. Those that do not work, let them wither. Those that do work, let them grow even more. Um, it's almost more for like a gardener role, if if I come to think of it. Okay, okay, I like that because uh, you have to oh, sow the seeds of love. So you, love, <laughs> you have to tend the garden right. to prevent it from being overgrown with weeds yeah. and uh, create the atmosphere for each plant to become its brightest. Right, right, right. Okay, I see that. Um, um, but so this sounds very nice, but this also sounds very uh, tree huggy uh, type. Uh, if you, if you, uh, convert that into practical ideas about how how can you approach this when you have a group of people um, say a company of uh, just a random number five or six people um, how how do you actually approach this what what is the practical steps that you can take well I think you're touching up on an, an important aspect and that's the size of the company okay each size has their own um, specific needs. So in a company with, as your example states, five or six people, you can be really close together. You can discuss a lot of the things that is going on on a daily basis, uh, but also uh, make well-educated uh, decisions on, okay, this is what we want to do as a company. Mm -hmm. um, I mentioned before, I like the concept of keystone habits. So in Ingewikkeld, uh, I'm doing an experiment at the moment where we have this weekly stand-up with the whole company because we're at different clients all the time. And then on Fridays, we come together or we have a video call and talk through the week, help out people there, but also, um, and this is the experiment, say one thing you learned that week 
And uh, for me, this experiment is to try out to see if people with this habit of saying one thing they learn a week can develop more awareness of what they learned during the week. Right. And with that awareness, I hope that they will gain enthusiasm to learn more on that specific topic yeah. or learn during the week. And with that, I try to uh, invest in a learning culture. Right. Right. This is one of my uh, one of my favorite uh, new experiments um, because we all work in so such different projects, uh, and sometimes people even don't. The lesson they they mention isn't actually something that that they were doing on a, on the project that they were working on. It's like a completely random thing that they learned in the week. Um, but I I quite like hearing about what other people have been learning. Um, and I guess by proxy, I learn from it as well at that point. The same goes for me. And there have actually been a couple of things that people learned where they were like, oh, that's actually really cool. I never thought about that. I should try that. Um, and that's been really interesting. Um, I do want to say if, for anyone listening, if you want to implement this within your own team, Definitely adhere to the rule, nothing is a bad learning. Nothing is something uh, that everyone else learned. If you learned it, it's valuable and yeah. it's worth sharing. Even yeah. if anybody else, everybody else knew it, if it was new to you, it's great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that's, definitely, that's definitely a thing because um, uh, I, f sometimes I wonder you know what what should i mention because uh i did learn this uh, uh this this thing about symphony last week but everyone knew about it already probably so why would i be sharing it um but what is what is the power of sharing it anyway if you already think everyone knows that usually you're surprised that not everybody knew oh right okay okay well that's interesting um so the fun thing is we've been talking a lot about learning and uh, you know in, in the game development and, and things like that and now you come up with information about uh, you know growing company cultures and stuff like that where the hell do you get the time to learn about you know game development and uh, web development and now company culture and stuff like this where the hell do you get that time well, mostly because I neglect <laughs> other things. <laughs> so we were talking about playing games earlier and uh, backing Kickstarters. Yes. Uh, one of the reasons I don't back Kickstarters is because I'm spending way too much time on learning stuff than on researching on what to back next on Kickstarter. Right, okay. Uh, so I don't even know what's, what's the hype at Kickstarter at this specific moment. Uh, I think I opened the Kickstarter website, I think, a couple of months ago last. Oh wait, Eric sent us uh, sent me a link on D and D tile sets that I opened. Uh, right, but I'm I'm so glad he does that because that's the only way I open Kickstarter usually. Uh -huh. um, but yeah, mostly by neglecting things, and I do micro optimizations of my habits. Okay. So uh, one example there is I listen to quite a few uh, audiobooks, and uh, whenever I uh, travel from home to the station, which is a 10-15 minute drive. I connect my phone to the uh, radio of my car and I play the audiobook. Right. And even though it's only 10, 15 minutes, 
if you add every 10, 15 minutes that you waste somewhere, you have listened to another book in two weeks. Yes, yeah. I do the same thing with podcasts, uh, where as soon as I step into my car, my phone connects on the Bluetooth and, and I start a podcast, uh, whatever was playing last time I was in the car, basically. Um, which is, I guess, um, podcasts are less formal, I guess, than audiobooks, because audiobooks are basically books, <laughs> but then read out loud. Um, so podcasts are usually a li little less formal, but I find I found that I find it really hard to listen to audiobooks unless it's uh, fiction and read by the author uh, or non-fiction read by the author. But um, I find listening to like uh, technical books and stuff like that uh, really hard because I have to see it somehow. That's how my mind works, I guess. I think it, it more or less same goes for me. Uh, audiobooks are a specific category. Uh, sometimes I do listen to a bit of fiction, um, though even from fiction you can get your learns if you look at them correctly. Right. Um, but in terms of nonfiction, I try to learn about uh, per personal development, cultural development, uh, more of the soft skill side of things. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Usually the author is a little bit more engaging, and I do tend to spend time on. Uh, checking out whether a book is read by the author, because usually they have yeah. a little bit more enthusiasm about the subject they're talking about. Yeah. Um, for more technical things, like I'm currently learning about data science. Okay. Um, because it's an interesting topic, and I know what's and I want to know what's going on there. Um, so then I pick an online course. Um, in this case, one from Udemy, for example. And I spend quite some time listening to what they are talking about during the course. Uh, in this case, uh, I just started with the data science course, so they're explaining me the basics of probability, which I should have remembered from school, but unfortunately did not. <laughs> um, so that, that actually, uh, at the same time, I also pick up courses that are not technical in nature. A uh, nice example, might be the uh, Penn and Teller Magic Work uh, Masterclass on Master, <laughs> okay, which is all about magic tricks. However, uh -huh. they also talk about psychology behind magic tricks and psychology of the mind. Right. So there, I picked up a couple of nice, interesting facts on uh, uh, how narratives are important to people, and if you, and it's all about causality. So if people do not see where something comes from, they're less they're less inclined to accept what you're saying. So yeah. if you can give them the reason why you're making a decision, a little bit of background, they are far more comfortable with the thing you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. So with all of these things that you do, do you still have time left for, I don't know, hobbies, things you do that do not involve a computer or listening to an audiobook? Uh, not that much, actually. <laughs> um, I, I like learning way too much. And uh, I think that's also at the same time the uh, hashtag problem that I have with picking up multiple topics and trying to learn from them. I am a learner. I love to learn about different things in life, uh, but I'm not a traveler, for example. I know some people who love to go to different countries, and a part of me actually wishes to be more of a traveler. Mm -hmm. 
And at the same time, I find that I have so many more passions and interests that are closer to home. Uh, but to answer your question a little more directly, uh, I do have a couple of hobbies that do not involve a computer. Uh, for example, uh, Dungeons & Dragons tabletop role-playing games. Ah, so um, when is our next session? Gee, do you really want me to ask that one on, <laughs> on the podcast? <laughs> uh, just to explain, because most people won't get that. <laughs> um, it's been nine months. No, it's not been nine months since we played, right? I hope. Shorter, but I, ho I definitely hope not. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a long time since we played, because we cancelled a couple of sessions. It's there somewhere in between. Um do you play more than uh, just that one campaign? Uh, yeah, the, at the moment I play in three different campaigns. Okay. Uh, a friend of mine is actually a little bit more invested into the game. And I think he actually plays three, four times a week. And uh, yeah, <laughs> that's um, interesting. I, I don't know where he gets the time from, but I think the problem is I like learning too much. So I spend yeah. probably too much time learning other stuff. Um, but in total, I think I spend, I play D and D uh, one to three times each month. Okay, okay. So there's a lot of campaigns that are slightly more regular than the campaign that we both play in. Um, well, yes, uh, one of them actually. Uh, although the other one is even more irregular, that plays about four times a year, I think. Okay. But has been going on for I think more than twenty five years now. Oh wow. That's that's a long time. Although I must admit that the campaign that we play in uh, has also been going for quite some years now. Uh, at least six or seven, I think. Yeah, yeah. So that's cool. Okay, so so this is um, um, so this is D and D, or is it role playing in general? Do you, do you also play other systems, or do you always play D and D? No, um, we tried out a couple of a couple of systems actually. Um, one of them is uh, Call of Cthulhu, the original one, not the Wizards of the Ghost version. Okay. Uh, which is actually a quite nice system uh, where you have a lot of freedom and, uh, yeah, well, the focus on insanity is always nice. <laughs> uh, Mutants and Masterminds is one uh, which we tried, uh, which is basically a superhero system. Okay. Um, and, of course, uh, GURPS. Uh, people familiar with uh, tabletop role-playing games uh, know about GURPS probably. And uh, that is also one of the more interesting systems out there, since you can do basically everything with GURPS. And actually, there's a nice, interesting parallel there with programming. If it's that flexible, it's also complex. Oh, right. Okay. So GURPS is, is a, a really flexible system, basically. Absolutely. The name even means Generic Universal Role-Playing System. Oh, right. Okay. Okay. I didn't know that. <laughs> um, Okay, so that explains something. This is this is the uh, the system that was built to be the end all of all systems, basically. Uh, basically, yeah, that's what they tried. Uh, though I think that they also killed the adoption rate uh, at the same time because <laughs> you can do so many things, which is that which is awesome, by the way, which is really cool. And at the same time, um, it's so complex. A vehicle combat, for example, you can assemble your own vehicle by saying, I want this part in it, I want this part in it, I want that part in it. And then when you try it out, it usually fails because you've got to buy that one specific part that you really needed. <laughs> okay. Okay. That's, um, I don't, th does D&D &D even have a vehicle combat system? 
I don't think so. Uh, D&D Modern might have one, but I'm not aware that the fantasy version of Dungeons & Dragons right. have, has okay. one. Uh, but, so why, why is D&D the most popular role-playing game? Or isn't, isn't it, maybe? <laughs> and I just think it is. Well, uh, in the bubble that I live in, it's definitely the most popular yeah. uh, role-playing game. And I think even outside of the bu- bubble, you could say it's the most uh, popular one. Um, and I'm not really sure, actually, why it's, it's the most popular one. I'm afraid that the answer is it was the first one that actually hooked people. Right. Okay. Yeah, well, that, that would still be a reasonable explanation, I guess. Um, have you ever read any of the... Um, D and D fantasy books, like either the Dragonlance series or the Forgotten Realms series. Now that you mention it, I actually have not. I did read uh, the Death Gate Cycle by Wise Snakeman, who yeah, are okay. the authors of. Uh, they do a lot of Dragonlance stuff as well. Right, yeah. but they are the original inventors of the Dragonlance setting, if I remember correctly. Okay, uh, that was a quite impressive series. I've I found. Um, but even though I'm quite fond of fantasy, I do have to admit I do not read that much fantasy anymore now. Okay. So, uh, of course, do you still read or do you always use uh, audiobooks for that? Um, I still read. Um, currently, I'm reading a book by R11, uh, although I, the English name uh, escapes me, Dachter Dagen, which is uh, actually a rather old book from okay. uh, the same author as Boys from Brazil. Yeah. Um, that's one is quite interesting. Uh, I started rereading uh, Douglas Adams, of course. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's I think what I re- read currently. American Gods is one of my uh, one that I re- have read recently. Right. I've I I have st- still to read that. I did read uh, Neverwhere by Gaiman. Okay. Neverwhere. Uh, that was my first Neil Gaiman book. Uh, to, uh, but I, I really enjoyed that one and I think there's a sequel coming to that one at some point So, or maybe it's out already I have to check actually Neverwhere is still on my to read list so oh, I definitely recommend it I really enjoyed it I had the same thing in Coraline which is of course a classic by Game and uh, that one I listened to with the voice of Neil Gaiman himself uh-huh. it, by the way if you like Neil Gaiman's work and you are into audiobooks, uh, check out his works because usually he does uh, the voices himself. Okay. And uh, it's, it's really great listening. Yeah, I can imagine the, if the, what I mentioned before, if I, if I listen to an audiobook, which I don't do that much, uh, I, I really like it when the original author uh, has, has done the audiobook because. I guess the original author is the only person that can really, really uh, get across how it was meant. Uh, so I can understand, especially with Neil Gaiman being the person that he is, that if you listen to an audiobook that he did, that would add a lot uh, to the to the audiobook. Uh, yeah, absolutely. He's a wonderful storyteller. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, but you still uh, so you still do do read some books every once in a while. Yeah, but far less than I read nonfiction. Right. And I and you mentioned that you you read you read the Dutch version of the R eleven book. Uh, is it is it um, is it easier to read the Dutch version or 
do you do you, do you you know don't really care about what language you you read it in? Actually, I usually prefer to read in the original language. Okay. So uh, with the Dutch author, and if it, it's a Dutch story, I prefer to read it in Dutch. If it's an English author, or uh, then I prefer to read it in uh, English. However, with uh, the book by Air Eleven, uh, we had it on the shelves in Dutch okay. by accident. Yeah. And um, that's basically the reason why I was reading that one in Dutch. So if a book, um, uh, if the original language of a book would be, for instance, uh, Spanish, would you prefer to read it in Dutch or in English? That's actually a really good question. Uh, usually I prefer to read it in English. Okay. Okay. Because that's... Yeah, to me, okay. No, let me let me first ask you the question. Why why English? Why English? Okay. Um I think I have romanticized the English language when I was younger. So everything sounds cool in English uh, to summarize. Um same goes for reading works of fiction um and even songs sound better in English. Uh, every once in a while for fun, I translate a song into Dutch and then I'm amazed by how wrong it sounds. <laughs> so uh, if, if I were to take a Beyonce n- number, uh, yeah. who is a great, great uh, singer, who does an amazing performance, and if I translate that into Dutch, for some reason I can't help but laugh because it sounds silly. Yeah. And I'm afraid I've got this preconception that the Dutch language is always a little bit silly. Okay, okay, I, I understand that. My my main issue is that, um, and this goes for fantasy, but this also goes for, uh, for instance, uh, tech books. Um, all the terminology, I'm used to the terminology in English. And somehow, um, Toverstokje doesn't sound as cool as wand <laughs> to me. Because, you know... <laughs> That's what I'm used. I'm used to English for for fantasy. I'm used to English for technology. Uh, so uh, I don't need no um, programmeercode. Uh, <laughs> it just doesn't make sense to me. Oh, I had that several times. I, I once tried to follow a course on the Open University uh, to actually get my degree. Um, and one of the things that actually turned me off was the way they Dutchified everything. I know there are proper Dutch words for things like uh, CPU, Central Processing Unit, and whenever I uh, see the word CVE, Centrale Verwerkingseenheid, for some reason, <laughs> I'm like, they lost me. Yeah, I'm like, okay, no, no, we don't call those things <laughs> like that in the real world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and 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 another thing that uh, that really turned me off of um, uh, Dutch translations uh, is. Um, are you are you aware of the Dutch translation of Lord of the Rings, where they even translated the names of the characters? Uh, no, I can't say I have. I've uh, read it in English. That's so wrong on so many levels. I mean, you can translate the whole book. That's fine by me. But translating names is like it just ah. I had that with Harry Potter when I first uh, heard about Harry Potter in Dutch. I was like, oh wait, who is that name? Oh, that guy. I was like, uh, oh. yeah. No, no. But again, it, it sounds like, like I, I don't know how to describe the feeling I have when it's translated into Dutch. Um, uh, I once had an, a version of Nero burning ROM, back in the time when we still burned our own CD-ROMs. Yeah. 
And I had a Dutch version of that. And whenever they say burn an image, they would say brand een plaatje. <laughs> which is and for the, for the English uh, the English listeners is a very literal in, uh, yeah. <laughs> version of burn an image as in a photo image. Yeah. It's <laughs> like burn a picture. Yeah. <laughs> uh, exactly. And that sounded so wrong to me that no I can't read Dutch manuals or or uh, Dutch applications. My mobile phone for example and my computer is always set to English. Yeah. Same. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, my, okay, this is, I came here to record the podcast, right? Uh, but uh, I also ordered a new laptop for you, new work oh. laptop. Yes. Uh, I, I just noticed it and I'm like, okay, I'm going to ask about this. Because when you first joined the company, uh, you got a laptop and it was an Acer or something, Asus, something like that. Uh, Toshiba. The Toshiba? Toshiba Protégé, I think. Oh, right, Toshiba. Um, so you started off with Linux. At some point, you switched to Mac, and now the new laptop that you've got, you're you're going away from Mac again. What is uh, what is the reasoning behind that switch right now? Well, I have one big problem. I'm not a fanboy of anything. Um, um, That's not a problem. Well, sometimes it is. <laughs> It's also it means that you it's really hard to get enthusiastic about something yeah, that you okay. really get into it and I'm more a bit utilitarian where I'm like okay this works for me I'll use it yeah um, and the Toshiba I had before and I'm not I'm not dissing Toshiba here but it was uh, its build quality was not meant for me I spent <laughs> way too many hours behind that computer yeah uh, as my wife can probably attest to sorry um, meaning that after one year, I think the keys fell off the keyboard. I had to replace the adapter twice. The uh, fan of the CPU eventually fell off and I had to reattach it. <laughs> and at that point I was like, okay, perhaps I should buy something that's a little bit sturdier. Yeah, you're a power, power user. Some people would say so, and I think I agree. Yeah. <laughs> um, so at that point I was like, okay, I need something sturdier. And Mac with its uh, aluminum shell, um, everything firmly attached, at least at the day. Nowadays, the keyboard also comes apart with the <laughs> Macs. But at the day, it was a really solid computer. I'm like, okay, I'm not a Mac fanboy, but I do have to admit, this is solid engineering. Let's go for this. Yeah. Um, and I think at that point, the Docker revolution happened. And I have grown more and more uncomfortable with uh, the performance of Docker on uh, both Windows and Macintosh. Right. Um, again, not dissing on the file systems, they are just missing some good connecting parts there. Um, and at that point I was like, okay, uh, 16 gigabytes of RAM that I currently am using with, Mac, with my Mac also regularly was not enough. Thank you, Chrome. <laughs> um, and when this laptop was becoming older, I was like, okay, I need a new one. And if I go for a new laptop, let's go for a sturdy Linux laptop as well. Yeah. Given that Linux and Docker are a match made in heaven. Yeah, I was amazed at some point uh, when I was working together with someone that was using Linux and I switched to Windows recently uh, to see the, the difference in performance between uh, Windows, Docker, Docker on Windows and uh, Docker on Linux. Docker on Linux performance is, is beyond comparing to uh, both Mac and Windows. Um, 
which is why I really look. I'm looking forward to next year when uh, the WSL two is will be generally available for Windows, uh, which is basically a, a fully functional Linux kernel inside Windows. Um, which means that I will basically be running native Docker on Windows next year. I'm really looking forward to that as well. And I wonder if it will work as well as they say it will. Uh, I've read some reports somewhere that WSL2 still relies on some um, tiny virtual machine. Yes. Uh, and that's the part where I get skeptical. Uh, because the same thing they said when Docker Machine became Docker for Mac, yeah. They also said, okay, there's this one tiny virtual machine mm -hmm. that's, and that's running Docker. And there's no question there. Docker for Mac is a huge improvement on uh, the old Docker machine setup. However, you still have uh, network file mounts going yeah. from your host machine to your guest machine. Yeah. And I hope someone listening to this can completely debunk this. But I'm very curious to see if WSL2 doesn't use file system mounts because that's the biggest bottleneck. File IO yeah. over a mount is, doesn't cut it to a real Linux machine. Well, so far, of course, it, uh, it is not a complete integration. There is a, a, a virtual machine in between. So is there anything other than file mounts to, to make the transition for the file system part? You have to have some kind of uh, connecting bit there. Uh, especially in Windows and Mac. Uh, Linux is entirely different. Yeah, of course, of course. They, there's yeah. no virtual machine there. There's a, a layer on top of your file system. Yeah. And that's why uh, Linux IO is so blazingly fast with Docker. Yeah. Um, but as soon as they can replicate such a thing with Windows or Mac, mm -hmm. where it's just a layer and not a, file, uh, not a network file share, right? Yeah. then performance would be awesome. Yeah. But uh, um, uh, I, I've been using uh, the first version of WSL. Um, and I must say that for most of the operations that I want to do already, it feels very native. Uh, of course, I haven't done very big uh, file system related operations, um, so I, I, I and I definitely have not um, done any testing to see how the performance is for for big file related uh, operations. But it it feels very native, so I'm I'm hoping that. Uh, from the initial videos that I saw of WSL2, uh, performance seems to be really good. I recently read reports that Docker is working close together with Microsoft to make the experience as best as yeah. possible. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I definitely hope that there's some kind of compatibility layer yeah. where you don't care and file always just works as you expect it to. Yeah. Uh, one of the fields where I notice a slowdown regularly is, uh, well, Symfony is a nice example since it uses cache. Yeah. And if you don't move the cache directory out of the way from the uh, from your network file system, you really really notice the difference. Yeah. Um, and same goes for uh, front end where you have your web asset building. Um, I think that's a factor ten slower on uh, Mac and Windows than it yeah. is on Linux. Yeah, I that's one of my frustrations in my current project. We we use uh, Symfony with Encore, 
which is, I think, basically a Webpack wrapper or something like that. Yeah, it is. Um, but so if I need to make a, like a simple CSS change, that that's all I do. Don't worry. Simple CSS changes. <laughs> um, when I make a simple CSS change, it can sometimes take up to a minute for me to uh, do a full build, uh, which is an annoyingly long feedback loop for simple CSS changes. Uh, that is something I can definitely relate to. Uh, the moment I'm working in a React app uh, that uses Symfony as a backend, and uh, there I have a do double whammy, basically, because both the asset building part takes longer than I would have liked. Uh, but at the same time, when I uh, refresh the page or when I call the API from the backend that's also there, uh, I am frequently greeted by 504 request timeouts because <laughs> it takes too much time for Nginx to complete the request. Yeah. Uh, so every time I make a change there, I'm, I'm really careful that I make the right changes, enough changes, and uh, refresh as little as possible. The, uh, one, of my, uh, one of the people that I work with right now at, at the current customer, uh, he came up with the idea of uh, taking a Raspberry Pi, uh, installing Linux on that, and then connecting it uh, directly to your to the network uh, uh, to the to the Cat5 port of your laptop, mm -hmm. um, and then running Docker on the Raspberry Pi instead of on your computer, um, so that you would still be running Windows or Mac or whatever you're using. Uh, but your Docker would be running on a simple Linux system and would actually be fast. As long as your files are on that Raspberry Pi and not yeah. on your local machine, yeah. then that should work. However, if your files are on your local machine, you have yeah. exactly the same problem because you need an NFS share yeah. to share data with Docker. Well, of course, you would need the share anyway, but it's probably uh, faster to uh, put the files on the um, on the Raspberry Pi uh, and then use the share in your IDE to edit the files uh, than it would be to have the files on your machine and use NFS to host it within your Docker, I guess. I think the biggest problem is actually that Docker writes to files Oh, so, so your guest machine writes your cache files, for example, mm -hmm. and those need to replicate back to your local machine. Yeah, and uh, that's I think the really slowest part, just because it's writing that many files. So, if you have your uh, Docker running on the Raspberry Pi, and um, for example, the cache folder in something that does not sync using a file mount, that we that will be a lot faster. Yeah. Um, however, it's also worth looking at the and now I have to remember this, the delegate option. I think. When you make a file mount, uh, if you have a cache folder, you can mount specifically the cache folder as a delegate, meaning that it will do a delete write back, and that's usually also faster. Ah, okay, that's interesting. I uh, I didn't realize that was an option. So that that would make the performance of Docker better. In general, yes. In general, yeah. Okay, okay, that's cool. And it could also be the cast option. I, I'm unfortunately I don't remember which one exactly. I always have to look that up. Yeah, the, I think the 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 cached option is only available on Docker for Mac. I don't think that's available on. Maybe it's available by now, but it used to only be available for Mac. So uh, because we had to make uh, different Docker Compose files for Mac users and for Windows users. Ouch. Um, because Mac users would be able to use the colon cached and uh, Windows users wouldn't. It wouldn't work. 
Actually, this is a good one to look up after the podcast to exactly. see how that works again. Exactly. Uh, that's that's one to look up. Okay. Um, that's cool. Um, I'm 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 thinking. What is what is the the coolest thing that technology has changed in recent years for you? Holy shit! That's a good <laughs> question. <laughs> The coolest thing that technology has changed in recent years. Wow, that's a really good question. I can answer with the whole uh, with very generic connectedness, uh, but that that's perhaps too generic. I think the coolest thing I I think that has happened is the world has become small. Um, it's a good thing and a bad thing at the same time. Uh, because that that small world also introduced anonymity, and mm-hmm. anonymity helps people to perform to act in different ways than they would they would otherwise, and unfortunately, usually in poorer ways. Yeah. Um, at the same time, uh, news travels faster. We know what is going on um, much more in the world. We're not limited to just our village or the city uh, next door. And we're able to have friends in places where you wouldn't have them otherwise. I know people in America, I know people in Africa, Asia, um, that I wouldn't have known otherwise. And I feel richer for it. Is that... Um, I, un- I First of all, I understand what you're saying. Is that also maybe not a downside? that you are so connected there's so much information coming your way that it's sometimes hard to ignore that information you get overloaded uh, yeah it does actually uh, there's so much information out there um, I, tr- I try to shift a lot of in what I hear uh, for example my Twitter social media uh, I regularly do not check my main timeline uh, yeah. I want to and whenever I've got a down moment I'll probably will um, but I use TweetDeck and have a couple of columns set up uh, where I basically have mapped out my uh, degrees of friendshipness uh, and uh, where the uh, first timeline that I see is my inner, cir- inner circle of people uh, that I can catch up with them and see, hey, how are they doing, uh, what are they working on. And then on the far right is the uh, generic search that I've got going on on uh, the, the game dev term, for example. Right, right. Uh, I, uh, you mentioned that to me, and after you did, I adopted a similar approach, uh, except that my first column is like the PHP column. My second column is like the uh, more personal uh, stuff that I find personally interesting, like music and things like that. And um, after that, I've got mentions and hidden far far to the to the right is the main timeline um I've, i i find that uh this approach is uh refreshing uh, because it helps me a lot more I, I okay i follow way too many people on social media uh but this this helps me keep track of the people that i think are the most interesting people to keep track of uh, which is very useful so thank you for sharing that uh couple of years ago I guess already I think so yeah because that was uh, 
that definitely improved the way I use the social media. Yeah, I think it's interesting that um, you mentioned this point because we are being flooded by information. And uh, at this day and age, even more, we need to be careful that we are flooded with the right kind of information, uh, especially not believe everyone who says fake news, that they are actually meaning that that is fake news. Yeah, but, um, I can definitely recommend that one. Uh, but also be careful with your own circles. Uh, which information do you consume? How frequently do you consume it? Don't be afraid to close your Twitter yeah. uh, an hour before going to bed and opening it an hour after getting up. Right. Don't be afraid to live distraction-free for a moment and let things be. I think people have way too much FOMO nowadays, fear of missing out. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. I, so uh, I think I had half a year, maybe a year ago, I turned off all social media notifications on my phone. That helped a lot. Yeah, that I can totally see. I, I only did that for email. Email oh, is right. one of those things where I'm like, okay, um, you'll get a response uh, yeah. when I have time. And I usually uh, take two day, two moments in the day to actually answer email. Uh, also as a productivity tip, uh, don't watch your email all the, all the time. Um, and that really helps because those notifications, that buzzing machine in your pocket, that's doing more harm than good when yeah. you let it go rampant. Yeah, I've, uh, I think it's been years ago that I turned off email notifications because uh, uh, I get way too, too much email. Anyway, um, so uh, that's, that's been longer ago. But the social media, I had a lot of FOMO for, for stuff happening on social media. Um, but I let that go. Uh, uh, some time ago, and it was it was around the time when I got my Apple Watch because all of the notifications also came up on my Apple Watch, and I was like, "This is really annoying." And of course, I can configure what is passed on to the Apple Watch and what isn't. Um, but um, uh, I just decided, you know, this is this is way out of hand. All of the Facebook notifications, all of the Twitter notifications. Let's just uh, turn them all off. Um, and that's definitely been been good in you know minimizing the amount of information uh, flooding me. Um, I think that is definitely a good thing to do. Uh, I haven't disabled all notifications, though I have uh, timed them, uh, made sure that some of those don't pop up or digest. Uh, but yeah, most notifications are. Just what they are, distractions. Yeah, yeah exactly. There's n almost nothing you need to respond on immediately. And I always have this stance. If you really, really, really must talk to me now, call me. Yeah. There's nothing I respond to immediately except a call. Right. I have the, um, I've made a, um, uh, at least for now, that still works. Um, I use WhatsApp and Signal. And WhatsApp is for most people and signal if if i get a notification from signal it's usually something that i need to act on because there's only a couple of people that use signal <laughs> <laughs> and that's the people that that i usually think okay maybe i should i should respond on that one um so that's also my, the signal notifications actually come through to my to my apple watch where the whatsapp notifications are only shown on on my phone 
and not on the Apple Watch. Because somehow um, WhatsApp to me is not social media, where a lot of people think that social media too. For me, it, WhatsApp is not social media. WhatsApp is a communication, a chat service. Yeah, it's basically like a text service, uh, like texting exactly. someone. Yeah, it's it's a it's a closed closed communication line, where where you know to me social media are open communication lines like Twitter and Facebook and you know stuff like that. That's for to me that's the difference between the two. I, I think it's also a matter of broadcasting on Twitter and Facebook and uh, the social media sites you broadcast for ev- anyone to read whereas yeah. with uh, WhatsApp you usually target yeah. uh, at the very least a group or one specific person um, and especially with some groups like family groups you mute them for eight hours while you're working yeah <laughs> um, but yeah uh, social media is uh, far more intimidating in terms of the amount of traffic that comes because it's just people broadcasting at random what they're thinking Okay. Um, Says the guy doing a podcast here. <laughs> <laughs> and randomly broadcasting what I'm thinking at this moment. No, it's not random. I mean, this is a very focused effort to broadcast, right? We planned this. Uh, we scheduled this. We agreed on the fact that we were going to do this, which is a lot different from social media. And true, social media is is almost forced in a way. Well, I don't. I'm not sure if it's forced, but of course you can always choose to unfollow someone and not get their uh, their broadcasts. Um, but uh, you know, so depending, of course, on how you use uh, Twitter, for instance, my Twitter is a random selection of a lot of different topics. Uh, ranging from music to PHP to uh, news to you know every everything all in one list. Whereas if I start a, if I listen a podcast, it's a very focused focused on one topic usually. And uh, you know beforehand what you're going to listen to uh, the very exactly. least a generic theme exactly. Um, so so there's there's a big difference I think in broadcasting like this and broadcasting uh, on Twitter or following it i absolutely have to agree that i was more focusing on the uh something pops up in my mind and i just say it out loud in this mic in the big microphone in front of me ah but that's how this podcast works <laughs> <laughs> that's what you can do actually that's what makes this podcast um having said that um i think it's a good idea to uh, uh to end this this podcast right now uh, have you have you listened to uh, any of my episodes before? I must admit I've listened to the first one, and I still have the other ones in my uh, podcast app to, waiting to listen to. Right. I'm one of those people who uh, listens too little to podcasts. Right. Um, so you do you do you remember how the podcast ends? Oh dear me! Oh. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. Oh. oh. This is going to be a surprise for you then. Um, so at the end of every episode, I ask the guest that I have in the episode, uh, because uh, you know every episode of the podcast needs to have a name, a title. Um, so I ask the guest of the podcast to come up with the title for the podcast. 
Oh, so Mike, <laughs> here's uh, here's something to do for you right now on the spot. Is to think of a name that summarizes this episode. Do should should I read out loud some of the previous names? Why yes, please. Okay, let's go. Uh, let's start with the beginning, uh, Rick. Um, we we talked a lot about a lot of different things, uh, Rick and I, and he came up with the title "How Fortnite Dances Can Help Your Speaking Career." <laughs> then uh, Michiel Papenhoven says, uh, "Well, um, the title for me was Why Anarchism Is Not Scary." Uh, Raphael said, uh, "Well, speaking your way into a family," and uh, Juliet said, "The life, the universe, and everything." Well. I think the most suitable name, which also uh, is one of my credos that I can come up with, is sharing is caring. Share, uh, that sounds very positive. That's a very positive title. I like that. Sharing is caring. That's going to be the title for this episode. Thank you very much, Mike, for taking the time uh, to sit down with me, uh, for talking to me, and uh, for the lots of fun that we've had over the years. And thank you for having me. And uh, I'm looking forward to all the fun that we're going to have in the upcoming years. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for listening to By the Campfire. For more information about the podcast or finding other episodes, check bythecampfire.net.